Yeah, on. Two twins. Yeah. Play it, Herb. Play it. Come on, Herb. Go, Herb. Go. Go, Herb. Go. Herb just doesn't stop, does he? Herb kind of only knows one one gear, doesn't he? Welcome to Two Twins in an Album. Tof, how are ya? I am splendid. Episode six, is that right? Six. Six. Which is um, kind of miraculous that we made it this far. I would say miraculous is a uh, fair description. It's good to be with you again to discuss another really important album review. Or I guess I should say that's pretty miraculous, eh? Yeah, we'll be taking a little trip to Canada tonight. You know, it's funny. I, I was with somebody the other day and they were reliving uh, stories of going to Canada, which... Those who listen to us know we're from the Metro Detroit area of Michigan and going to Canada is part of our culture. It's not, it's not something that you just sort of dabble in. You and I have spent quite a bit of time with our lovely neighbors to the north and tonight we'll spend a little more time musically with our neighbors to the north. Well, and it had nothing to do with the uh, uh, drinking age of 19. Nothing to do with that. no. As no. far as, as far as why we would, I mean, Windsor, Ontario is a beautiful city. We were mostly going there to search for moral purpose. See the sights. Had nothing to do with, you know, a bunch of bars on a street that were virtually 25 minutes away. No, no. Do the whole dance at customs, both to and from. It was... It was quite an ordeal, but it always felt worth it for some reason. Well, we have a couple of good custom stories that we, we don't have time for on this podcast. But I'll tell you who, who really won in terms of the whole Canada idea is tonight's artist. Tonight, we're really looking forward to focusing on a Canadian artist. So we cannot wait to talk about Gordon Lightfoot. I mean, that Gordon Lightfoot, <laughs> man, is he something else. Oof. Unbelievable. The true voice of Canada. Yeah. It's going to be a great episode. Now we're not going to talk about Gordon Lightfoot, but what we are going to do right now is go round and round. Ah, rat. Not a Canadian band. No. Rat, not from Canada. I, I fully assume they're from Los Angeles. That would be my guess. But uh, let's go right around. T, what have you been listening to in the last week? The band. Uh, their album, Cahoots, which starts out with their classic Life is a Carnival, one of my favorite band tunes. And it's always difficult to pick which album you want to digest from that incredible group. But of recent, I've kind of gone with cahoots as one of the go-tos from them. Uh, the second is the band Sloan. I think I've mentioned one other time during uh, what's in your head. 
here on the old podcast here and their album Commonwealth, which came out just a handful of years ago. And, and what was cool about this album is each member of the band got a side. So it was a four sided album and, you know, one was all written and, and sung by Jay Ferguson, the other by Chris Murphy, the other by Patrick Pentland and the other by Andrew Scott, which of course with him, it ended up being an 18 minute song, which is very cool. And, uh, you know, just another, I, I really love this album and it was a really cool effort from a really great band who didn't always put out great albums top to bottom, but Commonwealth, certainly one of their better efforts. And uh, the third album was my album of the year in 2016 by the Devin Townsend project, who I, I think I've mentioned uh, him on what's in your head before as well. And his album transcendence, which I think uh, probably by far is top to bottom Devin's best work. I see a theme in yours. There's a theme. What? What? Who? What? What? There's a theme to your round and round. No, I mean, no, I didn't, I didn't plan that or anything like of the sort. All Canadian artists from young Tove tonight, all Canadian artists. You got me. You got me. I did it. And three very, very good ones. The band, you know, they were, they were okay, I guess. Not bad. Yeah. I mean, they, they tried hard. Round and Round for me tonight starts with uh, Fear Factory's album Digimortal. This is from 2001. So kind of seen maybe as the last album of their heyday. And it's got um, Invisible Wounds, which is a song that I've always loved. And Lynchpin, another jam. And huge Fear Factory fans. So I've been continuing to enjoy that album. Uh, Chris Forsyth and the Solar Motel Band. Really cool group here. Chris Forsyth is a kind of a cosmic rock guitarist, certainly leaning towards the prog thing and dreaming in the non dream is an album that uh, this group put out the last few years. A lot of great instrumental stuff just with a really tight outfit. People should check out Chris Forsyth. It's worth your time. And then the 1994 effort from yes talk, which is Hmm. probably my top three. Yes. Albums. It's a great album. It's kind of a summer album for me. It's like the one yes album I can listen to during the summer. I think it reminds me of when I saw them on this tour in June of 1994. A couple of great songs on that album. And, you know, if, if you like that Trevor Rabin era of yes, obviously talk is, is a key part of that uh, era for them. Did, on the previous one, did you say that he, he wore a tight outfit or that the, the band was a tight outfit. I wasn't, wasn't clear on that. It's a good clarification. They were a tight outfit. Oh, the band. Okay. Tof, what happened to the nineties? Why is it that virtually every other decade contains a, a real connectable nostalgia with young listeners? If you think about young listeners still listen to music from the 60s, when you think about the Beatles and the Stones and the 70s, there's lots to explore from the 1970s. The 1980s can continuously have revivals. And that sound, you know, is virtually being reproduced by a number of artists today. What's with the 90s? Why, Why are the 90s just ignored? Why aren't we seeing any nostalgia boom from 90s music? Maybe with the exception of Nirvana. But aside from that, 
there were a lot of other bands in the 90s. I think that we will. I think we're in that kind of in between where it's not yet classic. It's sort of still that time period that hasn't yet gotten nostalgic enough. So I think there will get to a point where, you know, the grunge era stuff becomes sort of like our classic rock when we were growing up. You know, certainly one of the things worth considering is whether or not the 90s era, particularly the the rock type era, if it is going to have appeal, because what really made 90s rock what it was, was its minimalism. It was about stripping things down, you know, being fairly bare bones and making it work with grit and feeling rather than emphasis on layering and melody. And I think that's, you know, part of why the eighties still works is because a lot of that's electronic and, you know, to the, to the ear of many younger people right now, you know, that kind of makes sense right now. When you listen to some of that nineties rock, I could see a younger person's ear kind of thinking that it's dull or that it's thin. And that was what we loved about it was its minimalism. And, you know, back then you didn't have to rely on this layering and these muscle additions to a song to kind of provide it with feeling. It just kind of had that in a more genuine stripped down nature. I think he makes some good points about the production in the mid to late nineties. When tonight's album was released, albums were produced to sound good on radio and to sound good on speakers that were moderate size in a car or home stereo systems that were very often playing CDs and maybe rarely cassettes, but a lot of times they were playing radio. So production elements were put in place for music to sound good on radio and to sound good coming out of TV speakers because it was also an MTV. Nowadays, albums are produced to sound good on a speaker the size of a fingernail or smaller. And in a lot of cases, that speaker is directly inside of somebody's ear. So there's a huge difference in production, but I actually have a different theory and I want to run it by you. One of the things that I've certainly noticed about music today and in the last few years, it's this genre that I call festival rock. And the main (laughs) quality of festival rock is the main quality of what I hear in all of today's music, which is that it has to be danceable. It's got to have this danceable beat. It's got to have this thump to it. And you got to be able to dance to it. And it's got to have keyboards and it's got to have all the swirly elements. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty of the mid to late 1990s and the beauty of tonight's album is, is it was a smash hit and became mainstream and it wasn't danceable. And all of today's music feels like it needs to be something you could dance to or something you can jump up and down to at a festival full of people and turn your phone around on yourself and look really cool while you're doing it. And that's kind of what the big, you know, contradiction is between the era that we're going to look at tonight and where we're living in right now. Tonight's album came out in 1997. It's 23 years old. 23 years 
when we were growing up was a time period that you would consider classic and things from the early 70s by the mid 90s felt classic. The mid to late 90s sound, I think you you nailed it talking about some of the minimalist aspects. But one of the things that I noticed when I spent a lot of time re-exploring Clumsy is how good music sounds on compact disc. Because anytime we do this, I, I listen to the album in its native format. And the native format for Clumsy is CD. Man, music sounded good on CD. You yeah. know, it, it really is a pure waveform audio. It makes you realize how crappy things sound on MP3. And we all love MP3s because they're convenient and you can fit thousands of them onto a device. But listening to this album really took me back to a place where mid to late 90s albums sounded so good on compact disc. It's something that I certainly miss. And this reminded me of that. T, you ready to go to Canada? Well, good day, mate. That's Australia, but, but you know, oh. it's all the same, right? Oh, sorry. T, do you want to take the Ambassador Bridge or do you want to take the tunnel? Call right now. Which do you want to take? The bridge or the tunnel? Um, let's go with the tunnel. All right, let's take the tunnel there and we'll take the bridge back. How's that sound? That's let's, fine. Just make sure to act uh, nice and sober when we get to customs. <laughs> All right, let's, let's take that tunnel underneath the Detroit River and let's get into tonight's nerdy deets. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty deets? Nerdy deets done dirt cheap. Our Lady Peace was formed in Toronto, as one might expect, in 1992 really started with uh, guitarist Mike Turner, the original guitarist for the band. Michael Maida, who would eventually become known as Rain Maida, who was studying criminology at the University of Toronto. So did, did he come up with the name Rain or? He that... did. He did because he, he didn't want to have two mics in the band. So particularly since they were the two original founding members I think Michael Maida realized that he didn't want to be the second Mike in the band, so he assigned himself the name Rain. So it became Rain Maida, and, and the two formed Our Lady Peace. Now, they went through some different lineup shifts, but eventually landed on Duncan Coots uh, on bass guitar and Jeremy Taggart on drums. And we'll talk a little bit more about Jeremy Taggart as we go, who joined the band at 17 years old. And that rounded out the what, what everyone I think would consider the classic Our Lady Peace lineup. They've had lineup shifts since then. Unfortunately, Mike Turner left the band. Uh, very unfortunately, Jeremy Taggart left the band a few years yeah. ago. And now it's sort of Rain Maida and other guys. Jeremy Taggart being 17 years old caused some issues when he first joined the band. Uh, as we already referenced, the drinking age in Canada was 19. They played a lot of bars and being a 17 year old, there were some pretty strict rules about him not being able to play. So Our Lady Peace early on had to do quite a bit of finagling just to get Jeremy Taggart to play certain shows at certain locations because he was so young. So young, yet so important to this band. So important to this band. Jeremy Taggart has gone on to become sort of a Canadian celebrity. He's, he's the host of a very successful podcast it's called Taggart and Torrens. For anyone who hasn't listened to it, it is a terrific podcast. The last thing I would want to do ever is to take people away from listening to Two Twins in an album. But I recommend Taggart and Torrens to anybody. It's a very free-form discussion. 
Jeremy Taggart's got this really great delivery. For those who don't remember him, he, he was kind of famous for wearing black rimmed glasses and he had long curly hair. He was a very visible member of the band, but he's also got this really distinct voice. This almost sort of like nerdy delivery. And he's very, very smart and incredibly funny. And uh, he's gone on to now become kind of a, a celebrity in Canada, more for his podcast role than being the drummer of Our Lady Peace for so many years. He is a ridiculously likable guy. Uh, both in his podcast and you can go back and even listen to, you know, interviews while he was still a part of the band. And every time he talks, it kind of makes sense. And you kind of nod your head and it's like, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. You know, one of those guys, very likable dude. But do you know what Jeremy Taggart in the end is probably most famous for? It is for an appearance in a video of a song that he didn't even play on. <laughs> That's right. And so I, I was already an Our Lady Peace fan, but Nickelback became huge. Remember Nickelback Canadian band as well, a band you and I both very much like. Chad Krieger goes on to make this song for this movie. And so you might flip on MTV one day at some point, and you might hear a little bit something like this. And this video was immensely popular on MTV. And if you notice, you watch the video and they're showing the other musicians and all of a sudden it's like, Hey, that's the Our Lady Peace drummer playing (laughs) drums with the Nickelback guy. And I remember it was like, Whoa, like, you know, how did this happen? As it turns out, Jeremy Taggart did not play drums on that song. Matt Cameron played drums on that song, the Pearl Jam drummer, Soundgarden drummer. Matt Cameron was unavailable to do the video shoot. Chad Krieger was like totally stuck with literally no drummer. So he calls up his fellow Canadian friend, Jeremy Taggart. He says, hey, Jeremy, I'll pay you $10,000 to come and do this video shoot for this song I'm doing for Spider-Man. Can you come do it? And Jeremy Taggart's like, yeah, like, sure, no problem. And he became incredibly famous for being in this video. The video got so much airplay. The song was a gigantic hit. Huge hit. Huge. And a great song, a song that I still really like. And Jeremy Taggart's in the video playing drums. He had just learned this song literally hours before it. I mean, he's basically mimicking a song that he just learned. And he became really visible and quite famous for being in a music video for a song he didn't even play on. So Jeremy Taggart goes on to become this sort of celebrity for these very interesting reasons. And as we'll talk about, very important part of the band. There, there is a fifth member of Our Lady Peace, or at least Rain Maida. But how can that be? Look what love gave us. World for And the other guy, the guy that he duetted with, Josie Scott, was in which band? Saliva. Saliva. That's right. Another band that I really like from that era. Now, he actually, he was in the video and he actually did sing on the album, right? On the song. So here's what's great. It's another great story about this video. Josie Scott sang on the song, did a great job. His voice was, I think, a key part of the popularity of that song. Josie Scott shows up for the video. 
And he's like, what am I just going to like stand here and sing? And he was okay with that. But apparently the director really had an issue with this. So they give Josie Scott an acoustic guitar. Mm. He does not know how to play guitar at all. <laughs> if you watch the video, he's holding it left-handed and he's, he's playing much like a person who you can tell doesn't have a clue how to play a guitar, but they thought it was important for him to have an instrument too. So he's sort of like fake strumming along with this guitar while he's singing. You got the drummer who didn't play on the song and he just learned it a few hours before. This is what happens when the Hollywood movie machine gets involved with a music video, these types of yeah, things. Yeah, it certainly is. And if you remember the video at its time, it's very high tech. They're, they're on the top of a, a building. I'm sure the mm-hmm. whole thing was fake, of course, but, or maybe it wasn't. And they've got the screen with the Spider-Man clips, you know, yeah. very strategically spliced into certain moments of the song. It, it, it's actually a great video, but... Mm, hero. So that's Jeremy Taggart. Our Lady Peace had what at least Rain Maida considers a fifth member. And I will tell you who this person is in song. Okay. And the song is very important to this gentleman. And that song is. I get chills when I'm with you. Do you know? Now, what is that? You know that one? Of course, that's Sheriff. Sheriff, Sheriff, when I'm with you. Oh, there we go. Yeah, it's right here, Don. No, baby. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, it's a beautiful song. Oh, wait, here's the key change. Hang on. Can't turn it down. Do, do, do. Pop, 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 pop. Oh. You know when I get chills? I get chills when I listen to that song. When I listen to Sheriff. Don't forget, too, the bit in the verse that you you just passed it up in the clip, but there's a... um, there's another bit where he goes up high. Is it another? Is there a baby? Oh, it's ooh, babe. I oh mean, wait, I, yeah, I found it. Here it is. Human. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was something else. Sheriff, what I'm with you, written by Arnold Lanny. Arnold Lanny the producer and considered to be the fifth member of our lady peace paramount to the our lady peace sound arnold lanny somebody who's very very well respected in music produced several other other bands and someone who's an expert in songs but he also brought some textures to this band that come through very clear on clumsy so arnold lanny is is a big part of this album really significant part of this band after the spiritual machines album it ended that era and the band went on to work with bob rock and and became a completely different band a much more polished kind of hit making machine more than what they were at the time of the recording and release of clumsy 
Clumsy followed the, the real smash success of uh, Navid, the 1994 debut album, which was really boosted by two singles, but primarily the lead single, which was Starseed. And Starseed was a pretty extraordinary song when it was released. It was very, very different from a lot of things at the time. And I'm sure we'll get into some of our early work with Our Lady Peace, some of our early connections with Our Lady Peace. Yeah, it'll, uh, probably, it'll probably come with the wonder stories, but I, that was Starseed was a song that you in particular found very early. Very early. This was indeed a band that, uh, that I discovered very early compared to when most of the rest of certainly the area we were growing up in, but I would say most of probably American listeners discovered. You know, there's a song that I found early. What's that song? I found that one early. There were five singles released on Clumsy, Superman's Dead, Clumsy, the title track, Automatic Flowers, Carnival, and eventually, 11 months after the album was released, which says a lot, Tof, 4 a.m., which shows you a number of things, including the longevity of the success of this album. Oh, yeah. No question. Let's find out how you discovered Our Lady Peace as we transition into tonight's Wondrous Stories. your Our Lady Peace story? Often I could overhear a lot of the, you know, ridiculous uh, music that you were playing at times. I remember like, Hey, what do you call them ridiculous? What do you call them ridiculous? Well, you know, and and look, as I've, as I've said before on the old podcast here that, you know, I, my brain just wasn't ready for this. So, I mean, this is not an insult. You know, I wish you know, I could have understood some of that music that you understood at that ripe young age. But, you know, I would hear you'd be listening to King Crimson or, you know, Wigwam or, uh, uh, you know, old Genesis stuff. And uh, I'd be kind of like, what's he doing over there? You know, what's, what is this? But I remember also when you uh, first played Starseed and it was like, okay. I don't know who this band is, but I like them. I already, I, I just know I like them and, you know, got into the, to the Navid record a little bit. Uh, but when clumsy came out, it was, I mean, it was a big deal for me. I, Our Lady Peace became one of my favorite bands of that time as things went on, uh, you know, they fizzled out quite a bit, but um, important album and one that probably is up there as far as, you know, number of spins during that time period, uh, our lady piece clumsy was, was a big one for me. How about yourself? Even though I already kind of, you know, yeah, told your, told your wonder story. Starseed was a, a very early discovery. We, we had a radio station. We have a radio station in Metro Detroit that certainly used to identify itself as alternative rock radio. I don't really know what its current form it is, but 89 X 88.7 really, really important radio station in the 1990s for all music lovers. It was kind of the station where you go to to hear what was 
new at the time, but also what was really hot just from the last few years. And Starseed started to receive rotation on that station pretty early on, even before Navid came out. And it was one of those songs that when you hear it, you just connect to it. I mean, it was, there was something about that song, the verses and the chorus, the way that everything weaved into the next part. It was just a really well done song. And so, yeah, Starseed really connected very strongly. By the time Clumsy came out, it was really anticipated. I actually bought it on Canadian import from its original Canadian release date. You know, rarely do you have prized possessions that are CDs. I'm really proud of my CD copy of Clumsy because it's from the Canadian label. The back is written in, in French. That always reminds me, oh, I bought this album you know, before this band really got huge. 89X does still exist, but much, much to your chagrin, I think they play a lot of festival rock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and by the way, I, I wanted to, I, I, I was going to say this earlier, but your coining of the phrase festival, I, I, I think you came up with that. Yeah, I never so, heard that before. Yeah. So I think it's, I mean, dare I call it a, a two twins in an album exclusive. You heard it here first. But I actually do think it's a perfect description uh, and, and kind of funny of this current uh, genre of music. Festival rock. Trademark nubs on that one. Let's drop the needle and let's get into Our Lady Pieces Clumsy. The album starts with acoustic guitar and a song that was described to me in the time that it came out as that new Smashing Pumpkins song. Clumsy kicks off with Superman's Dead. I'm thinking Somebody comes up to me and says, man, I heard that new Smashing Pumpkins song, Subway. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no, really? It's a song that's a pretty amazing lesson in dynamics. You know, you talk about the quiet, loud, quiet, loud, loud, quiet thing that's going on in here. It kind of shows you why it was a hit then. It also really explains why it could never be a hit today. I mean, this is the furthest thing from festival rock that you might get. It starts with acoustic guitar, very powerful refrain at the end of the song that becomes sort of the hook of the song. It's it's extraordinary in the sense that the hook of the song comes really in the last minute and a half. But something very memorable, something very different at its time. Yeah, very anthemic. You know, this was uh, particularly, you know, that that latter section uh, that came to be known as a, a section of a 90s song that many, many people uh, identified with and recited. And it was a it was a nice, nice piece from that song, certainly. And Rain doing some stuff that only Rain could do when it comes to vocal capability. 
in, in such a freedom, just from an artistic perspective, for him to allow himself to get to that place. He's a very young vocalist at this time, and he's letting things happen that many vocalists just would have been really inhibited against trying. And I think that it gave the band an immediate identity. His voice, the falsetto, all the little things he would do, which we'll talk a lot about as we weave in and out of the songs in this album. But he would get further away from that falsetto stuff as the band's career went on, which gives this album quite a legacy because he was doing things on this album that he wasn't able to do, say, 10 years later when they really morphed into a completely different band. So what comes after Superman's Dead? Automatic Flowers. Falsetto vocals kind of in full effect here. You said it perfectly, Tove, using the voice as an instrument. That's, that's his specialty. It's what he's doing here. What really stood out to, to me about this song, though, was the bridge. You know, this song just kind of came and went for me until they get to that middle section where everything drops out but guitar and drums. The, the bass guitar drops out. And then it goes into that section where Rain is doing that, hi, you know, that really high vocal stuff. And it gave the bridge a real lift from a song that to me didn't have super dynamic verses and choruses. But one thing you'll find with Clumsy, an album of tremendous middle sections. This band could really write great bridges. And I think Automatic Flowers is an an early example of that. What do you think of this song? No, it's true. And and also, you know, pre-chorus sections. There there are a lot of those on this in this record that are really impactful, you know, and, and I think that was another element of a lot of these nineties bands were if the verses weren't quite your bag or the choruses weren't quite your bag. And we talked a little bit about it with Oasis, the ability to develop a pre-chorus or a middle eight or a bridge, whatever you want to call it, that catch your appeal. You know, that was something that a lot of bands at this time were able to utilize and you're absolutely correct on this album. It's it's utilized, you know, brilliantly, both the the middle sections as well as the pre-choruses. And one of the things that that Rain's vocal capability was able to do, it really was able to take a lot of pressure off the rest of the band because it's it's not a big guitar solo band, and certainly this isn't a big guitar solo album. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, they were able to almost turn Rain's voice into a a middle section solo in many cases. And I almost think that sometimes his voice substituted for guitar solos in many sections. So kind of takes pressure off the band in a way and and also, you know, gives you a a differentiating way to be uh, creative that many other bands don't have that capability to do. Smart read. It's a very smart read. And I know there's an, a certain song come about mid-album that's quite beloved for exactly what you just described. But on the road to that, you got to make a stop at track three, Carnival. No Tof, what do you think of Carnival? I just think Jeremy Taggart's such a good drummer. 
Oh, dude. This song is all Taggart. You know, I played in bands with our older brother. And one time he was, he was getting really pissed off at the way I was playing. And he kind of had a little outburst. And he said, dude, you've got to play more like the Our Lady Peace guy. He's loose, but he's also tight. And he's tight, but he's also loose. And it was funny. It, it, several years after that, when I was reviewing music, I had a chance to interview Jeremy Taggart, which was a, a complete thrill. And I, and I told him that. You know, I said, man, my brother yelled at me for this reason. And he, and he said, hey, that is, that's my complete philosophy as a drummer. Yeah. Tight and loose and loose and tight. And uh, he is just so good. And you're right, Carnival is a terrific example of, of his prowess. Yeah, it's the type of song. I mean, you know, it's, it's well put together and it's a nice track three. But it's one of those, and I think there are probably going to be a, a few on this record that just wouldn't be what they are without his approach to drumming. I also think that Carnival is maybe the, the first example where you see Arnold Lanny's production really come through. There's no keyboard credits, which can only lead me to think that Arnold Lanny, who's a, a, a fine multi-instrumentalist, did a lot of the keyboard treatments throughout the album. And the beginning of Carnival and, and some of the parts in that song do feature some pretty cool keyboard and, and synth parts. And you hear that throughout other parts in the rest of the album. It's a big song. It's the entrance into the chorus is, uh, is a pretty memorable part of the album. And, and it leads nicely into track four, big dumb rocket. built around a, a basic rock riff but man the middle section of this song is just so catchy i mean i used to walk around like at school during the day and just go do 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 da do da da do da da it you know again rain making it happen i guarantee you that he sang that part you know, by all accounts, he used to sing a lot of the middle sections and they would take it from his vocal lines. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty good. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's kind of a setup to the next track um, in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, you, you get four tracks into this album and, and you certainly realize that you're listening to something very creative. And, and I would say that that was kind of the big differentiator between this and, and Navid was... You know, that had a lot of kind of straightforward, very driving. I mean, it was a great sound, very trademark Our Lady Peace sound. But it's a good point in the record to kind of understand that before you get into the next one. 4 a.m. This is the moment where Toph might need, uh, might need some Kleenex. Things might start getting emotional over here. I just, I just kind of had something in my eye. It's... Uh... It's very dry in here. That's that's all that's happening. I don't know. It looks like maybe a tear coming down. No, 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 no. Okay. No, never, never.
before I pass the baton to you to tell us about how this is one of your favorite songs of all time, a couple of interesting things about this. Rain wrote the song at 4 a.m., which is why it is titled 4 a.m. But the subject matter of the song, for those of you who really pay close attention to lyrics, clearly is about his father. It's like a conversation with his dad. His dad's initials were AM. And the second that all that came together, Rain felt like he had something special because it was written at the same time that if you say the song title, it also means for his dad. Very, very sentimental stuff going on here, uh, lyrically, musically, and everything in between. Tof, tell us about your thoughts on 4AM. Well, you can really sense that in the performance. I, I actually didn't, didn't know that, but you, you can really, you only need to listen to this song once to understand that there is a, an emotional, you know, very compelling element to it. So not surprising that it had some, you know, personal elements within the performance. I, you know, we, uh, we play music, we play cover songs, uh, acoustic versions, and we do a lot of 90s stuff and 80s stuff and 70s stuff. And, and it's great. And we actually play 4am. And I, I remember we had a gig. This was like two or three weeks uh, after my son was born. And we were playing 4am. And, you know, I got to kind of that, that last section of the song and between the song and me now being a father and my kid being born a couple weeks before I, I just started crying you know it's like we were, we were like performing in in this bar and you know playing this song that kind of brings down the mood a little bit and literally while playing it all these things kind of started running through my head and I just freaking cried, you know, which I don't do very often. So, but, it, but I think it's telling of why this song touched a lot of people. And, and I'm certainly one of them is, is just the, the power of, you know, not just the, the melody and the layering. And I mean, obviously it's a, another great middle section, but just, you can sense so much you know, passion in this performance, pure emotion when he hits the high vocal at the end. I think it's just absolutely extraordinary. I adore this song. I probably always will. And it's a very special part of the album. To your point at the beginning, when you were talking about the nerdy beats, Dunder Cheap, and listing the singles, I, I remember literally spending months telling people and I had a couple of really good friends that love this album. And I remember telling them what, why isn't 4am on the radio? I just, what is going on? Like this is the most, one of the most incredible songs I've ever heard. How is this thing? And you know, cause clumsy was on and Superman's dead was on. And you know, it seemed like, like I said, it seemed like an eternity until this song really gained appeal. But I'll tell you what, when it did, and when it became a radio hit and more people got to, you know, got to hear it and got to absorb it, I, I think it became as special for many others um, as it did for me. It's a great take. You know, Rain Maida, when he wrote this song, 25 years old, you know, 27 when the album was released, some pretty profound stuff for such a young 
artists. And I think that's what's key about Our Lady Peace. These were pretty young guys. Such a fresh voice, such a fresh sound compared to their peers. And 4AM is a great ex- example of that. And the keys at the end just introduce such a spectacular layer. You know, I mean, it's one of those, an already, you know, very emotional song and just made it even better. It's a five song run that would, that would rival pretty much anything else that came out during this era, maybe even in the whole decade of the nineties. And it leads you into shaking. always willing to do things with rhythms with uh, cut time and double time and going back and forth between different rhythmic patterns you can do that when you have a drummer that's as amazing as jeremy taggart what do you think of shaking a little bit of a tweener song i think it's uh to me it's kind of that song in between 4 a.m and the title track which which does contribute to what i think is a brilliantly sequenced album and what shaking does indeed lead into is the title track clumsy quiet all A song that did a lot of things. One of the things it, it did is kind of put the Moog synthesizer back on the map uh, with the, the parts in the chorus and that middle section. And again, you've got that loud, quiet, loud thing going on, which this band, I mean, masterful job of dynamics on most of this album. And Rain's voice combined with that synthesizer part, I think was a huge part of the commercial appeal. Yeah, that layer's outstanding. You know, Rain himself uh, said that, you know, his favorite part of the song, not terribly surprising with Rain, is when everything breaks down and it's just the vocal. He actually said that this song was a real struggle within the studio, a real struggle to perfect. And it sounds like this song took weeks to record. So I think it was one of those, and sometimes this happens with a specific song or a specific project within the studio is you kind of work on it, then you get away from it, then you go back to it. Then it sounded like one of those deals, but probably ended up being extremely productive because some of these synth layers and some of these additional things that were done to really, you know, again, this album's all about plussing up sections and making them even better. But Rain said that until they decided to have that breakdown, you know, he knew they had captured kind of the uh, appeal and emotion of the song that they were trying to get across. You know, I think they, they, their work paid off on this one. They probably knew when it was all said and done that they had something pretty special. Yeah, they, they were truly building a house with this song, taking the necessary time to make it perfect. This is the one song in the album that feels like it was perfectionists being perfectionists. You know, the rest of the album does have kind of a more raw, almost spontaneous feel to it. This song feels like it was intended to be a hit single and constructed piece by piece to be a hit single. 
And th- and that gets me to the next point about this band. You can't forget, as we talked about at the lead, how important it is that this band is Canadian. You know, and, and you look at the history of Canadian rock bands, there's just no pretension. But there is a history of wanting to be different. The band w- was completely different from what was going on in their era, and they stood out. Rush was completely different from the rest of their peers, and they stood out. The Tragically Hip was so different from their peers, and it stood out. But in no case, in those three good examples, was there ever an ounce of pretension in what they did. It all still came from a very genuine, authentic musical place. Our Lady Peace the same way. It's, it's very obvious that these four guys were artists who wanted to be different from the rest of what was going on in 1997, but they didn't act like it. They didn't make it a point. They didn't come out with something shocking. They still came out with really pleasing songs that mainstream listeners could enjoy and that radio would love. But it was very different from what else was going on. And I think that's always been something that stood out about the band. And I've always attributed that to be that they're Canadian, because I think those are very Canadian traits. Yeah, well said. I mean, and certainly they got experimental, I mean, with spiritual machines and and then they put out what could be argued was probably their most commercial effort thereafter with gravity. So, you know, it's a band that just definitely tried a lot of different things, went in a lot of different directions. I would say for the most part, at least during the first handful of albums, you know, they got it right more than they got it wrong. Can we just get one thing out of the way? You and I love spiritual machines. Yes. Yeah. I actually, my favorite album of theirs is, is happiness is not officially you can catch. I wasn't sure if you were going to pick that one or this one. And and I'm glad you picked clumsy. It's a super important album from this band and, and of this era. But I think happiness is actually their strongest work top to bottom. Yeah, incredible record. No doubt about it. Out of Clumsy comes a little bit for the punk rockers here. Hello, Oscar. I just hear like straight up uh, Sex Pistols in this song. You know, it, it, it's the one song that really has very few complexities to it. He does do his little falsetto vocal thing in the chorus, which is very cool. But I, I see this as just raw, riffy, almost punk rock, just kind of a relentless song. Yeah, it's cool. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a driving number. Uh, again, you know, you had Clumsy which uh, was, again, pretty emotional and anthemic. And, and it, it's, a, it's a nice song to sort of bring you down from that. Not my favorite on the record. And again, I, it's kind of another tweener, you know, that, that worked itself in between two really, really strong songs on this album as we get to the next one. But, you know, it's good. It's okay. It's Taggart time. Let you down. First and foremost, great use of the hand claps. Oh, great claps. And again, like an MP3 might not capture that, but when you listen to the song on CD, 
those hand claps during the chorus, it's again, just a significant part of the catchiness of the song. Do you love let you down as much as I do? Oh yeah. I, so if, so if 4am presented to me a great deal of frustration from a, why isn't this a beloved song on the radio standpoint? I, I then shifted to let you down and ask the same question. It's like, okay, now it's let you down's turn. When is, when is this one going to be the next Our Lady Peace classic? Because, and I'm still to this day, I'm shocked that this never took off as a, as a single because besides 4am, I've always felt this to be the, the best song on the album. And that's saying a lot when you factor in clumsy and you factor in, you know, some of the other songs that actually were very successful singles, but still a mystery to me in a lot of ways to this day that, that this song never took off as a single. So yeah, I, I think it's an incredibly strong song within this album and one that I'm shocked never took off. Just a phenomenal drum performance by Jeremy Taggart. You know, if you could hear an isolated track of what's going on here with Jeremy Taggart behind the drums. It's a very intricate, complex part, but he plays it with such looseness and plays it with so much groove. And at the beginning, he's doing one feel. And then one of my favorite parts is at the end, the very end of the song, you get this payoff where the chorus riff is no longer tight. Everything's wide open. And it's just a huge rock out part to conclude the song. Yeah, it's a, it's a beauty. Tagger Time continues a little bit with the story of 100 Isles. Strong rhythm section elements. I just love when the drummer's sort of carrying the band. I know I'm a little biased, but, you know, sometimes it happens. Uh, you know, he, he was extraordinarily important to this band and certainly to this album. It's a great intro. I, I think the song is, uh, it kind of peaks at its intro. That's a very cool rhythm and a, a very cool, almost psychedelic kind of feel to it. The rest of the song's, you know, okay, but uh, part of me wishes that that first 15 seconds went on a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, second to last track, creative, swirling, a little bit of psychedelia to it. You know, it's good. It is sort of the, uh, the token 90s, let's do some India-type rhythms. And, yeah. you know, it's, it seemed like every band during this time at some point or another was doing a song that had some like Eastern rhythms in it. It's the coolest shaker move, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The coolest shaker thing. And it, it all stems from, you know, the first time George Harrison picked up a sitar and introduced it to the, the Western world. But there is a little bit of, of tokenness to that idea of, okay, here's the nineties band doing the, the Eastern thing. But uh, I love the dynamics. I think that the loud, quiet, loud thing rings very true in this song, particularly in the verses, you know, when everything kind of crashes in after the more quiet section of the verse is a pretty cool section. So it leads you to a pretty dramatic conclusion. And again, something completely different to end the album. Clumsy ends with Car Crash.
Soul's an interesting place on this record, especially the way that it ends things. And that, that sort of more sweeping, uh, dramatic aspect of the dynamics is something that certainly paces this song and paces the album to a, a pretty dramatic ending. It's an awesome closer. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's different. It's, it has a different tempo. It has kind of a different vibe, kind of a song without a chorus. It is a really intelligent way to close this record, certainly. And, you know, broken record, but just more goodness from Taggart. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like we're back on the Toto episode talking about Jeff Percaro again, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, there are a lot of similarities between the two guys in that, you know, there were probably guys with better chops, more speed that could do a lot of things on the drums that Jeremy Taggart perhaps couldn't have done as well. But when it came down to feel and groove, he had that ability to do that much like a Jeff Barcaro type versus somebody who could, you know, bust out a six minute, you know, drum solo and get the roto toms going and, you know, hit the gong at the end and all that stuff that you saw with a lot of, you know, theatrical drummers who are all very good in their heyday is it, it takes a little something special to really be able to find that groove, find that power, have that touch. And those things don't necessarily come through by, you know, somebody, you know, shredding out a, a ridiculous, you know, drum solo or fill necessarily, but it comes from being able to kind of deliver within that space perfectly. And Jeremy Taggart's that type of drummer. And I think it's, you know, it's a song that showcases that kind of leaving you on the way out showcases Rain's voice as one that in this track a bit more haunting, um, which I think comes off well. And again, the idea, as we talked about with nineties rock of being minimalist, you know, you don't need to overdo it. You don't need to overlayer it. Cool, interesting, intelligent closer for this album. While this band certainly is a core part of the mid to late nineties, this band was different. And, and Rain's vocal performance on Car Crash is similar to a lot of his other performances on the rest of the album. He really stood apart and gave this band a, a strong identity against its peers without question. Well, don't forget about track 12. Track 12. Well, there was a hidden track on this oh, one. Oh, let's hear the hidden track. The hidden track. Not, hidden not a track. lot of people. Not a lot of people knew about it. Track twelve. Track twelve. Yeah. Hidden track. Great drumming by Jer- Jeremy Taggart on that one too. At least <laughs> in, the, in the video. At least. I can't figure out what's better, that or the acoustic guitar from Josie Scott. <laughs> Both important. Both very very important. So that wraps up Our Lady Pieces. Clumsy Tof. The golden question: Did clumsy matter? You know, I, I think it did. I, th- I think it did matter at that time uh, of a band that was taking a lot of these grunge ideas that, you know, had to have a certain grit and had to have a certain feeling to them. And, and they were able to take songs that could be layered in a different way without just, you know, stacking guitars on itself and, and, you know, howling vocals. I mean, this was a, completely unique vocalist at the time 
and this album really demonstrated this ability to be stripped down and simple because it does sound like a nineties record, but it holds up in that, you know, you have a lot of these layering elements and these keys and these, you know, synth parts and different things that don't overdo it to the point where it sounds like festival rock, but certainly at that time gave people a lot of cleverness and a lot of creativity. Um, so I actually do think this, this album mattered. I think it produced some, a couple of pretty timeless, you know, singles, you know, from that era that have held up extremely well. I personally do think that their next record happiness is not a fish, uh, was their best. So if I had to pick one to pop in, I would probably pick this second or maybe even third behind spiritual machines on the right day. But that just shows the strength of the band. You know, I mean, this, the, the first handful of records that this band put out, um, really were outstanding and, and they really did deliver for those that really got this band. So yeah, I think all in all, this album, uh, did matter of its time and those that are willing to kind of go back and revisit it top to bottom, you know, again, you can't necessarily compare it to the pro tools era or to some of the, um, layered sounds and songs that you hear today. But if you put yourself you know, back in this time period where a lot of those things had yet to develop, these songs hold up extremely well. And I think of their time, were very creative and very unique. What do you think? I think it matters, but I think it should matter more. My issue with does it matter is that it really hasn't translated to a new generation of listeners. It kind of had us, sort of the, the Gen X, Gen Y listeners. It certainly had our attention and presumably still would if people went back and rediscovered it, but it hasn't caught on with a new gener- generation of listeners. And that's what brings me back to the original conversation at the top. You know, why, how can an album this great not connect with newer listeners? So yes, I think it matters to certain generations of listeners. And I think it should matter more in a more fair musical world. The album would matter more to a wider range of listeners. And and to your point, maybe it will, you know, maybe we will hit a point where the nineties become more nostalgic and albums that deserve to be rediscovered by a new generation like clumsy. Maybe those will indeed get that treatment. So with that, let's go to the final cut T you tell me here in the final cut, is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the dreaded? for sale bin for me it's in the collection and um again it's it's probably my second maybe third favorite our lady peace album soundly in the collection it's uh, again i think it's it is an album that matters and is important and, and i agree with you fully I, I hope it does get rediscovered how about yourself oh it's on the turntable it's on the turntable because it really is very complete with the exception of a couple songs that might be considered sort of duff tracks, everything's got some imagination in it. There's so much just raw creativity. It reminds you of an era where rock bands could do things a little bit differently and it didn't have to be danceable. And that's the thing I just continue to come back to with rock music from this era. I love that it was powerful. I love that it moved people. I love that it spoke to different emotions 
that we were all having when we were growing up in the 90s. But maybe more than anything, I just love that you don't have to dance to it to enjoy it. Is that, that because you're a horrendous dancer? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, is, that, of course. is that a factor in this? It's a factor. I would, say, I would say it's a factor in this. I mean, sometimes I just feel like dancing. You know? just got to dance. You want to dance tonight. You, know? <laughs> you ready to head back from Canada? We're taking the bridge home. You ready to get in the Ambassador Bridge? Oh, I don't know. Do we have to? Can we stop at uh, Tim Horton? Well, back then, Tim Horton's, you know, was a candidate. Now it's, you know, I got one two minutes for my house. But uh, back then it was a novelty. All right, let's get in the Ambassador Bridge. Let's travel home. And let's check out what is in your head. They're still They are Come on, Dolores, one more. Toph, what's in your head? Three things. Uh, the first would be one of my uh, all-time favorite ballads from the 80s, which is Never Surrender by the great Corey Hart. Ooh, um, ooh a wonderful great song. song. And again, uh, another one that we play together on our acoustic outings, but, uh, you know, just an outstanding song and one that I think will hold up for a very, very long time. One of my favorite songs of the 80s and one of my favorite all time. It's hard to call it a ballad. It's actually pretty mid-tempo, but it is an absolutely gorgeous song. The second is also a gorgeous song, and this is one of my favorite ballads from the 90s and it's by blue rodeo and the song is called lost forever absolutely just beautiful heartfelt it certainly has become a song that i still listen to because uh it's just one of those that that gets you it's just gorgeous and the third is uh not so much a ballad but kind of a unique you know rap kind of electronica song from the 90s by brand van 3000 called drinking in la it was a pretty decent hit on a lot of uh, alternative radio and a song that many people would may not recognize the band but certainly would recognize drinking in la if they heard it and it was a song that was a little bit ahead of its time it kind of reminds you of actually some some more modern stuff that includes sort of hip hoppy type elements while also being essentially a pop track with a lot of electronica behind it. So great song there by Brain Van 3000. And I will pass it over to you. What's in your head, sir? I saw a theme. Oh, I saw a theme in your what's in your head. Again? No. We never left. We didn't get on the bridge. We stayed in Canada because, again, three Canadian artists. All right. All right. I, I did it. You know, who, you know who's very proud of you right now is uh, Stephen Abutman. Yes, the, he's the president of the uh, WGA, I believe. The World Canadian Bureau. World Canada yeah, Bureau, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's very proud of you right now. Yeah. What's in my head right now uh, it, it, it's not actually three Canadian artists, but is uh, Once in a While by Dishwalla. Very important to say the live version of this song from the Greetings from the Flow State album. Uh, so always one of my favorite Dishwalla songs, but the live version is really what you want there with once in a while. That band has some great songs. They, 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 and that actually it was, I don't think once in a while was on this, but they put out a self-titled album a few years later that just has a couple of rippers on it. I mean, that's a, that's a good band right there. 
Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, Flying Colors, which is one of the newest uh, progressive rock supergroups that features Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, who I think is in every prog rock supergroup. But it's got Neil Morris and a few other kind of, you know, newer prog musicians. Um, their most recent album has a song called Cadence. The album's called Third Degree because it's the band's third album. And Cadence is a real highlight of that particular album. And I recommend people to check that out, whether you're into Prague or not. And then lastly, a song that I uh, jammed to while rollerblading in the beautiful weather this week. And that was Space Hogs, I Want to Live, which is off of the Hogacy album. I continued to follow Space Hog, you know, even after Resident Alien and, and uh, in the meantime was out. And I Want to Live was one of those later singles that they had that was a, a pretty, pretty good jam. So that is what is in my head. Tof, I loved taking a trip back to the 90s with you. Loved it. Well, and north of the border. It was, it was a lot of fun, a, a nice pick, and a, and a great album to revisit. And uh, appreciate you bringing it to the table. Two great things, the 1990s and Canada. And when you combine them, you get very, very lovely results. See, we got to get our butts home. We got to get across the border. I mean, it's, it's late, you know, we, we sure still, do. We still got to go through customs and yeah. we got to find our way back home. So let's find who, our way back home. Who knows how long customs is going to take, especially if they decide to get that cavity search going now. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody so much for tuning in. Make sure to check us out on our various platforms, subscribe to us, leave us comments. And we'll see you very soon on the next edition of Two Twins and an Album. about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy